Got it. I'm going to have a, a fairly simple lesson this morning, really just looking at uh, some things that we can see in the Bible, primarily from the Old Testament, uh, that show us what not to do. Um, and, and you know, you can find all kind of stuff in there about what not to do from from, you know, Direct commandments and statements that say, Thou shalt not do this, or Thou shalt not do that. Um, to, uh, to really more detailed examples or stories that we can read and, and kind of get a feel for things that God does not like or things that, that God is not good with. And, you know, that's really what I'm going to try to look at is just a few things that that we can see that God is not good with, that he doesn't like, and uh, not just uh, some specific commandments, but look at what some people did in the Old Testament and uh, some things that were said about that. Look at how that turned out and draw some con- conclusions from that. And I think uh, everyone here has spent a good bit of time in God's Word, and, and when you do that, uh, if you're paying much attention at all, you should begin to pick up on a few things that uh, God really has disdain for. That he, it, No matter if it's happening in the New Testament or the Old Testament, he's not good with that. He's not good with that kind of attitude. He's not good with, with someone treating others in, in that way. And, and um, you know, we can draw again some conclusions uh, when we see those things, especially when we see them over and over again. Uh, and again, sometimes we, we get this knowledge from commandments that he gives us over and over again. Uh, sometimes it's from specific lists. Uh, you think about this commandment in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. Is that a, a commandment that we find repeated throughout God's Word. We see that from time to time. Uh, we see that in the New Testament. And so, you know, that's one of those repetitive commandments that it's not hard to understand that that's kind of an overreaching uh, theme that God expects His people to abide by. Uh, and then you have these lists, like in Proverbs 16, that plainly tell us some specific things that God uh, hates. It says there are six things that the Lord hates, and seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, and feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. And so, again, not hard to understand from that list that you don't want to really be any of those things, right? That. Nothing on that list is, is something that uh, you want to even really venture close to if, if you are trying to be pleasing to God. And um, One of those things on that list is the, going to be the first thing we talk about this morning. Um, and again, we're going to be looking at primarily the Old Testament. And think about why God has given us the Old Testament. Uh, why did he give the Jews the, the Old Testament? Why were those things written down? Uh, and part of the reason he tells us is 
uh, so that we can learn from it. It's a schoolmaster so that we can we can learn about the nature of God. We can learn about how he <clears throat> thinks about things uh, and learn about uh, some of his general expectations for uh, those that are trying to be faithful to him. And, you know, the book of Hebrews really does... Um, kind of the same thing that I'm wanting to do this morning, uh, you know, looking back at, at what others have done and basically saying, look at what these people did and look at how it turned out and draw some conclusions from it. Uh, and so that that's what we're going to be doing. And, um, you know, I, I put this little phrase up here, the youngest kid in the family should theoretically get in the least amount of trouble. Why? Well, why would that theoretically be true? You know, well, if if the youngest guy, if Stanton's paying attention to what's happening to his brother and sister, if he's paying attention to what they do uh, wrong and what they get in trouble for, he should be able to, to draw some conclusions about what me and Angela's expectations are, uh, you know, for him. And so, again, that that's what we're doing here. We're going to look at, at some things that have happened with some people and and how that turned out and draw some conclusions from that and so the first thing and again this was on that list of seven things the lord hates um but it's one of the things that i wanted to look at because we have a good many examples of of people being this in the old testament uh is this this thought or idea of being proud or haughty and so feel like the first time we really see a good picture of this and, and you could you could maybe say that the sin of Adam and Eve had some pride in it or the the sin of Cain had some pride involved with it but this this story of Babel the tower of Babel is really uh, uh, the first clear time I feel like you can see people uh, really struggling with this idea of pride or haughtiness and you can see the Lord's reaction to it says, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed all over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them." And so, you know, we don't have a ton of information about these people or, or really uh, how all this transpired, but we can see that they were getting a little big for their britches in this. They built this tower. They wanted it to reach to the heavens, and they wanted to make a name for themselves. And, you know, God knew how that was going to turn out. We can see from, from the way he responds to that. He knew how that was going to turn out. He had just finished destroying all of mankind except for Noah and his family uh, because all of mankind, every thought was evil. And so uh, it seems like he he heads this off this time and and disperses them by uh, giving them different languages. And so, again, not a lot of information about that, but we can see that this idea of glorifying ourselves, of, of man lifting themselves up, uh, is is not something that God uh, wants us to be doing. There's uh, several kings that we're going to talk about 
that that are all good examples of uh, having a haughty attitude or being prideful, and 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 we can see how that played out. We can see how God dealt with that, and and we can learn uh, from those things. The first one is King Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel, and I've just kind of picked a few excerpts from that story uh, to to paint the picture of of uh, a king who had grown haughty and and who was glorifying himself. Chapter 4, starting in verse 28, says, All of this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar, and at the end of twelve months he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And so all of, all of you in here who know this story uh, know that you know, God had, had helped Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom to grow, uh, and Nebuchadnezzar had had these uh, dreams that Daniel interpreted and, and told Nebuchadnezzar that his kingdom was, was going to have trouble, that he was going to have trouble if he didn't start doing right. Uh, and, and that's where we pick up here. Um, it, of Nebuchadnezzar basically reflecting on all of this greatness that he has been blessed with and, and giving himself credit uh, for being uh, the one that came up with all of that and glorifying himself. And so the next verses say, While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling place shall be with the beast of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High God rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from among men, and he ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws." And so, you know, there's a statement in there that, that shows us exactly what the problem was that Nebuchadnezzar had and, and exactly why he's being punished. Uh, verse uh, 32, I believe it says, Until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And so this idea of glorifying ourselves or thinking that we are the one who has accomplished great things in our lives and, and not realizing that these good things and these good blessings come from God. You know, if we want to give ourselves the credit, God is not going to be good with that. Um, We can see after Nebuchadnezzar went through these seven years of of living in the wild like a wild animal, uh, that the punishment had the effect that that God wanted it to have. And, And Nebuchadnezzar really straightened out his attitude and thoughts uh, about God and and, and about uh, who was in charge. It says, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him what have you done 
At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. So we can see... You know, there that the, just the way that whole story plays out shows us exactly how God views those who are pride and prideful and haughty and who want to glorify themselves, uh, and and shows us really both sides of the coin: what not to do and and uh, how to get to where you need to be, and 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 how we uh, change our attitude to know that God is in control and that really all good things. Uh, Come from him. The next uh, haughty king that I had on the list was the king of Assyria, Sennacherib. Uh, and again, I'm going to try, we're not going to read the entire story, but just several excerpts from this story to see again um, what this idea of, of pridefulness or haughtiness uh, looks like and, and how God can deal with it and will deal with it. 2 Kings chapter 18, starting in verse 19, says, And the Rabbishacheth said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are a strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you've rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting now in Egypt. That is a broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is the Pharaoh of the Pharaoh king of Egypt to all who trust in him. But if you say to me we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, You shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Come now, make a wager with the, my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you two thousand horses if you're able to on your part, set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. All right, and so, again, I think everybody here, uh, you know, hopefully was able to recall that story back to memory of, of uh, Judah and King Hezekiah. And, you know, they basically uh, had their backs against the wall. Israel had already been carried off into captivia, captivity. And now here's uh, the Assyrian nation, who's a powerful nation, up against them, uh, wanting to, to overtake Judah and carry them off as well. And they're taunting Israel, right? You can, you can just... The way he's saying those things just seethes uh, pride and haughtiness. And, you know, uh, the king of Assyria and and his messenger there uh, clearly uh, feel pretty good about themselves. In the same story, uh, just a few verses later, uh, they taunt Judah again. It says, Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. 
Behold, you've heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan and Haran and Rezbah, and the people of Eden who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharim, and the king of Hena, or the king of Iba? So again, this is you know the same people, the messenger of the king of Assyria, taunting Hezekiah and Judah, you know, basically saying nobody is able to withstand us. We know um, we're not going to take the time to read all that because uh, I've got a lot more to go through. But but we know how Hezekiah dealt with this, right? Uh, this nation's up against them. They get this letter taunting them and saying those things that there is no hope. We are the greatest. We're fixing to conquer you. Uh, and Hezekiah basically presents that letter before the Lord and prays for, to the Lord for deliverance. Uh, and that's what happens. Um, you know, the end of this story, we see God basically dealing with this proud nation of the Assyrians. And, and it almost seems like um, if you read what I, what Isaiah says in the verses that I don't have up here, God indicates that he was the one that had given Assyria the power. He was the one using Assyria to judge some of these other nations, but that Assyria had taken it so far and becoming so had become so haughty that he was going to now have to punish them. Uh, in 2 Kings uh, 19, starting in verse 27, it says, But I know you're sitting down and you're going out and coming in and you're raging against me. This is... Uh, God's response to Assyria through Isaiah. It says, Because you have raged against me and your complacency is coming to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. Uh, Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant, David. And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, uh, behold, these were all dead bodies. And so... And we can see, too, that that even Sennacherib uh, met his end because of of this prideful stance that he had had. And so, again, I think the lesson that we can see here is is even though God had been using the Assyrians, they had reached a a level of pride and haughtiness that that even he was not good with. And so when they began to taunt Judah uh, and, and come against Judah, uh, and Hezekiah, being a faithful king to God, came to God asking for deliverance. God gave him that deliverance. And so uh, the phrase there in verse 34, that he was going to save the city for his own sake, talking about the Lord saying he's going to save it for his own sake, uh, almost seems like he's saying, you know what? You've been taunting me, saying that... that you're greater than all these other gods and that there's no way I can deliver this people. And so I'm going to show you 
that that is not true. And we see God acting like that uh, and, and responding to haughtiness and pride like that in different situations throughout, throughout the Bible. Um, in Acts 20, or Acts chapter 12, starting in verse 20, we have another uh, king there who was a haughty king. And again, we don't have a ton of information around this story, but um, it, it is a story that we're all very familiar with. It says, Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, and they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. And on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes and he took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And so... It seems in this situation, God deals with it pretty rapidly. You've got King Herod, and, and you can just picture how this was playing out. Uh, you know, King Herod uh, glorifying himself, the people chanting and, and, and you know, kind of helping to stoke his ego even more, saying the voice of a God and not of a man, and, and Herod standing up there just letting it all soak in uh, and, and letting himself be glorified and and not giving any glory to God and he was punished for that and so again this this idea of haughtiness or pridefulness is is throughout the Bible uh, and it and it's with particular people it's with kings uh, and even in Revelation uh, in the churches of Asia the church at Laodicea it seems like uh, you know that was one of the problems that they had there. And they were about to be punished for it. And so even a congregation can be, as a group, haughty or prideful. It says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation, I know your works, for you're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold nor hot. So because you are lukewarm and and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich and I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. So again, here's a congregation who is being rebuked because of their haughtiness or their pridefulness. They think they need nothing. They think that they've got everything that they need and that, that God can supply them with nothing. And you know, we can see how Jesus is answering that and, and rebuking that and, and what he's encouraging them uh, to do, to repent of that and make that right. And so all of these examples that we've just looked at, uh, we see God opposing the proud in all of those, right? Uh, every time a nation or a king or a, a uh, congregation 
kind of gets proud or haughty uh, and, and thinks they can do it all on their own, what happens? They run into resistance. They run into uh, opposition from God. Uh, and, you know, that's what this passage in James tells us, that, that when someone or some group uh, starts acting like that, they are going to run into resistance. And so, um, you know, I think that's the, the first lesson I want us to see and talk about uh, this morning is, you know, again, God tells us he hates pride and the prideful and he resists that. Uh, and that glorifying ourselves and thinking that we don't need God for anything is really a good way for us to to bring some calamity upon ourselves or some hard times or hard trouble upon ourselves. Um, it hinders us from obeying God, and, and eventually it, it brings not only trouble in this life, but punishment in the life after if we don't uh, repent and change and, and adopt humbleness as our attitude as opposed to pride or haughtiness. All right, the, um, <clears throat> the second thing that I wanted to look at of, of things not to do that we kind of see pop up all throughout scriptures and especially in the Old Testament is this idea of oppressing the weak or, or not helping someone in need, right? Uh, when we encounter someone in need and we have the ability to help with that and we don't help them, or uh, when we just take advantage of, of someone who is weaker than us or who uh, is poor or doesn't have the ability to stand up for themselves and, and we take advantage of that. And <clears throat> Again, this is something we see God bringing up uh, a lot in the Old Testament and some in the New is, is something that he is very much not pleased with. Um, you look through all of the, the books of the prophets and, and you get, I don't know if they all have something along these lines in it, but a lot of them do, that that is one of the things God is rebuking uh, the people that the prophets are preaching to uh, over is doing this very thing. So I've got just a, a few verses uh, that show us that. Zechariah 7, starting in verse 9, says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention, and they turned a stubborn shoulder, and they stopped their ears that they may not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his Spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, greater anger came from the Lord of hosts. And so, here Zacharias recounting some of the times prior that God's prophets had basically taught the people to, to be... Uh, merciful towards those uh, who were in uh, bad situations, towards those who didn't have as much. Not take it, do not take advantage of them. Don't oppress widows. Don't oppress the fatherless, uh, the traveler or the sojourner, the poor. Um, and again, we're going to see several more passages that, that show us this same thing, that that is something that God... Um, seems to, to pay special attention to when, when the poor 
and the needy are being treated badly. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 22 says, Do not rob the poor because he is poor, or crush the afflicted at the gate. For the Lord will plead their cause and rob of life those who rob them. And so that that passage, and I think I've got another one in, on the next slide in Proverbs that you know basically shows us exactly how the Lord thinks about one who's uh, taking advantage of someone lesser, right? Or someone who's in a bad circumstance. Um, it says, The Lord will please that plead their cause and rob of life those who rob them. And so I think we can see from there he, he has a special place uh, in his mind or heart to, to watch out for people in those situations. Isaiah 10 uh, starting in verse 1 says, Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help and where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain, for all of his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. And in Proverbs 17, uh, verse 5, it says, Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. So again, these both of these passages, again, show us the same thing as the previous slide, that God gets upset when the poor and the needy, when those who are helpless are oppressed or taken advantage of instead of, of being shown mercy and instead of uh, being helped. He views it as the same if, if, if someone is mocking the poor, he views that as the same as, as mocking uh, him. And I think we don't want any of uh, that to be what we're doing. A couple of New Testament passages along these same lines. Jesus, talking to the Pharisees, um, says, But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. And, you know, there's other passages where Jesus says this same thing along these lines that one of the things the Pharisees were guilty of was, was trying to do things on the outside that looked good to people looking on, but really treating those who actually needed help badly and not providing for them uh, and taking advantage of them. Uh, and, and he rebuked them harshly for that. And in James chapter 2, a passage that I think we've read in here a good many times, it says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace and be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And so, you know, James there is really making the common sense conclusion uh, that, that should be made. If we see someone in need, if we have the ability to help, uh, we need to do that and, and uh, take action in doing that. And not, not 
helping with that is going to always end in bad results. If you're making it more difficult for the poor and needy, if you're not stepping in to help when you have opportunity to help, uh, the, the results that, that we see in scriptures of choosing to be that way are not positive. That's not, that's not where you're going to uh, want to end up. We can see that God has always had uh, concern for the helpless and the needy. He expects us as children to show the same con- concerns. And again, it seems like when those type of people or that group of people is mistreated or not helped as they should be, that it especially gets his attention uh, and, and not in a good way for those who are, are being that way towards them. <clears throat> Yeah, I think uh, we basically have already said all of that. All right, the third thing, we've got just a few minutes left and a few slides left, but the third thing that I think we can see or that I wanted to bring up in this lesson that we can see in the Old Testament and a little bit in the New Testament that God is not good with, that he does not like, is whining and complaining. Um, and... We have a group of people called the Israelites who were masters at that. They excelled in whining and complaining. And we have instance after instance of, of them being that way towards God, of them being that way towards God's leaders, and of him being displeased with that. And so there's lessons that we can learn from that and things that we can be reminded of from, from seeing that. Exodus chapter 17, starting in verse 1, says, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages. This is right after they've left Egypt. According to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. All right, so that's, again, immediately after this great deliverance God has given them from uh, the oppression of Egypt and from all the hardships they had there, uh, it does not take long before they start to whine and complain uh, to Moses and against the Lord, saying, why did you even bring us out here? Numbers chapter 11, another time uh, that they are whining and complaining, it says, And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. All right, so they're they're complaining again. Uh, and, and in this same story, it says, And say to the people, Consecrate yourselves tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. So that's one of the things they were complaining early on about no water. Now they're complaining about no meat. And he says, Consecrate yourselves tomorrow, and you shall eat meat, for you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. 
You shall not eat just one day or two days or five days or ten days or twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, Why did we come out of Egypt? While the meat was yet between their teeth before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Therefore the name of that place was called Kibrath Hatava because there they were buried there they buried the people who had the craving. And so, you know, that picture and that story about the Israelites complaining about water and then later complaining about meat and, and God's response about you're gonna complain about that, I'm fixing to give you meat. I, I think you can just see that in the the tense of his response, how much he is displeased about their complaining and you know, I think it's easy for us in our lives, you know, we, we encounter people who complain, and it's easy to get to that point that God's at, right? You know what? i tell you what, I'm going to give you what you're asking for. Uh, and so I think we can relate to that and understand that, but what happens to us oftentimes is we forget that, and we start complaining ourselves. And, and you know, these type of stories should remind us to not do that and, and to think about the good that God has done for us and, and not complain about what we think we don't have. Uh, Numbers 14 is another place where Israel is complaining against God. It says, starting in verse 27, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I've heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and all of your number listed in the census from twenty years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb the son of Jephthah and Joshua the son of Nun. And so, again, they get to the doors of Canaan uh, and, and they get this report back from the spies and some of them bring a bad report of it's too hard and we'll never take this land and it's not going to be good. And so the people, again, complain against God. Why did you bring us here? We're going to go in there and get slaughtered and killed. You know, we would be better off in Egypt. And so God reaches his limit with their complaining at this point and basically tells them, you know what, I'm not going to give you what I had promised. You're not going to get to go into that land and it's because of their complaining uh, and because of their lack of trust and faith in him to, to follow through and so he ends up destroying uh, that whole generation except for Caleb and Joshua you know, because they continually complained and, and doubted and, and fussed about you know, how hard it was or what they didn't have. And so you know, I think that, that those are lessons that we're supposed to look at and, and be reminded of to not be that way. Uh, and the New Testament tells us not to be that way. Uh, I believe the book of uh, Hebrews even recounts those that generation of, of Israelites and, and basically points back at them and says, don't be like them because they ended up not getting the reward that they were promised uh, because of their lack of faith. And so, again, uh, Christians, 
are told uh, in, in these two passages in Philippians and First Peter to do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. And First Peter, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Those are just a, a couple of places where we have plain and simple commandments about not grumbling or disputing or complaining, but the the stories of the Old Testament, to me, really show us more about how God is displeased with uh, that type of attitude and, and with, uh, you know, those type of people. And so we certainly don't want to be uh, complainers or grumblers. And I think you know, everyone probably understands the problem with complaining, right? What does it show? It shows a lack of faith, a lack of trusting God to be able to provide for us and take care of us and follow through with, with what he's promised. And it also shows a lack of, of gratitude uh, that we don't appreciate all the good that's been done for us. And I think more than anything, that's probably one of the reasons that it uh, ruffles God's feathers so bad to to have his people complaining about what they don't have or, or grumbling about uh, how difficult things are uh, at different times. So That's really uh, the lesson that I had this morning. <clears throat> I had that one final point about complaining is not really just bad for the person being complained to, right? It's, it can be a contagious problem in a group, right? And I'm sure we probably all experienced that at work or uh, on your team in sports or maybe even in a congregation. When, when one person kind of gets disgruntled and starts complaining, what happens? Some, it it kind of gets other people thinking that same way. And, and the next thing you know... The whole group has turned into into woe is me uh, complainers, and uh, it's headed down the wrong path. And so, again, that that's something that the scriptures is very clear about that that you don't want to do or or be a part of. So, this morning we <clears throat> haven't really talked at all about salvation or the plan of salvation or forgiveness of sins, but have, have looked more at uh, what a person who's trying to be faithful to God needs to uh, stay away from, right? We've, we've talked about pride and haughtiness. We've talked about this idea of being a, a moaner and complainer, a grumbler, uh, thinking about the things that we don't have and, and how that really shows a lack of gratitude. Both of those things are, are missing gratitude, right? If, if we struggle with complaining, if we kind of go down that path and think about what we don't have, uh, it's because of a lack of gratitude. If we're prideful and we think we did it all ourselves uh, and that we can handle it all ourselves and that we don't need God, again, we're not having gratitude for what has been done for us. We're, we're missing that important link to uh, being faithful to him. And so this morning, again, we we always offer the invitation for anyone who has never become a Christian to do so, but I think most folks here who 
are of age are that. And so uh, we also offer the opportunity for anyone who may have uh, struggled with with the things we've talked about today or struggled with uh, other things in their life that, that have affected their faithfulness to God and their service to God. And we're here to help one another and, and encourage one another and pray for one another in overcoming those things. And so uh, if there's a need that we can help with uh, while we're together here, we ask that you let that be known as we stand and sing.